Today we will be hearing from Brett, and the passage we'll be hearing is Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Morning. I've just been at a conference called the CCDA, and I don't know that I know what it all stands for, but I think one of the words is Christian, and one of the words is community and probably development association. So I guess I do. And it was just a whole bunch of people involved in Christian community development, a whole association of them, in fact. And just the bless my, bless my soul, bless my heart, the one song we sang, 2,000 people probably in a room singing that song. It was just such a powerful encounter of just being with all these people that are doing such amazing stuff that makes me sit there thinking, oh my gosh, God, what am I doing? But just knowing that God is doing like such amazingly different things in everyone there. But just the power of getting together in larger communities of the church, just meeting and just kind of the sense of God that just grows from that. And so it was an incredible time. And I just want to share kind of one story from that that really moved me. And the last kind of 24 hours of the conference, I was blogging about the conference and I was writing this stuff and going, this is ridiculous because I'm not capturing any of the heart of anything. It's kind of like you did have to be there, but I will try to share one story that I think will illustrate enough, even if you weren't. So there's a guy called Father Boyle. He's basically Santa. I mean, he looks like him and this friendly oldish guy, he's been working with gangsters for 30 years. And he gave a talk that was 95% stand-up comedy and like 100% just hardcore challenge as he just shared a lot of stories of the work of transformation that God was doing in gangsters' lives. And a lot more of these kind of impossible stories of like, God can save these people, but those people, good luck with that. And the one story he shared, he was on the way to um, give a talk and he had three of his kind of young gangster friends with him, guys that he's working with in the car, and they're busy traveling towards this conference, and suddenly the one guy, Manuel, gets a text from one of the other gangsters back at the base, and 
I'll clean it up a little bit because we're in the sanctuary. But basically, he said to his friend, he said, Manuel, you've got to get yourself back here. I'm in the police station. I've been arrested, and they are charging me with being the ugliest person in the city. And I need you to come here so that I can prove them that it's not true. As he's telling the story, and as a thousand people, two thousand people are busy laughing, there's a moment, and he said he reflected on it. And the realization that a few months ago, Manuel and Snoopy, the other guy's name, were shooting bullets at each other because they were from rival gangs. And now they're shooting texts at each other. And just like stories like that of just powerful transformation of 30 years in a place, and probably a lot of stories where it doesn't end up that well. But just the idea of rival gang members that become family, that are transformed by God, that are working together, that the impossible is made possible when we invite God and allow Him to do it. And then just kind of a brief disclaimer, I suppose, before I go into the preach for today. I want to introduce today's soundo. And a soundo is kind of like a typo, but with sound. And so a couple of weeks ago, I preached a different message in the Sunday evening than I preached um, in the morning here. And a huge part of it was dealing with the book of Proverbs, and I dealt with the passage on guarding your heart. So God, protect your heart. At least four people in the congregation heard me give this amazing message on God being hot. Um, and they just couldn't understand why I kept on, like, booming into the microphone, God, you're hot. God, you're hot. So being South African, I do have a bit of an accent, and sometimes the things I mean to say are not going to necessarily be the things that you hear. <laughs> and so if during the message this morning you think that you are hearing me say, I'm asleep on a ghost, I'm actually talking about the sheep and the goats. <laughs> so if you just start wondering and start thinking that doesn't mean sense, just bring it back. Come back, sheep and goats. I'll act it out if I need to, but just clarifying that up front so that we don't get confused when I get there. Matthew 22, I just want to read you some well-known verses. You don't need to turn to it. Uh, 34 to 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let's just pray and invite God to use this time to transform us. And so, Father, we just thank you as we come together to meet together as your church. And we thank you for testimonies of people like Peter. Ordinary people doing radical things, just as... He lives out a life of faith in his family, with his students, with his families. And just as we get to connect with other people that are, are building your kingdom in their way, in their life, in their context during the week, help us to encourage each other, help us to learn from each other, help us to inspire each other, to pray for those of us that are struggling, and just continue to build your community. And as I speak this morning, I just pray that you will make your will clear for each one of us and so just as you're sitting there just pray that you can pray it silently in your head God make your will clear for me 
I imagine some of you are in a place where God's will feels really clear. Some of you are probably sitting asking, what is God's will? And so we just come today and we ask the God that loves us so incredibly much to reveal his will, to speak into our lives, to show us how we can know for sure what he wants us to be doing, who he wants us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so I'm going to be speaking about the will of God and how to live it out. When I do talks on the will of God, like my mind often gets a little bit distracted, and this is just silly, but I always kind of have the impression or the idea of this question, like the will of God. Like if God dies, who gets all his stuff? Kind of thing. And I imagine like God dies and and the lawyer comes in and he's busy reading out the will and he gets to Albert and he's, Albert, you've done pretty well. Actually, you've done really well. You've been really good. You get South Africa. Moves a bit further down the line. It's like, Stefan, sorry. You really weren't that good, so you can have Canada. (laughs) I don't know if that's how it works. Apologies to any Canadians here. I love Canada. But seriously, that is a question that a lot of people are asking. How do I know God's will for my life? Have any of you ever asked that question ever? Like, what is God's will for my life? Anyone here asking that question at the moment? You're in luck. That's a whole whole bunch of people. Because I have a definitive answer for you. I am going to absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, reveal God's will for each one of your lives. I'll just put my hat down afterwards and um, take a little offering. No. The answer to what is God's will for my life is this. And I know this might (laughs) bother some of you. Read your Bible. And I'm not being overly spiritual. I'm not being heavily sarcastic or anything like that, but I really believe that the answer is in here, and not in a way that you have to kind of search it and really kind of struggle to find it. I'm going to give you a glimpse into some of the aspects of God's will for your life that are definitive, that are definite aspects of God's will for your life. I have a bigger kind of preach message, and I'll just go into it a little bit, where I talk about kind of the idea of a general will and a specific will, and this is how I understand God's will through the Bible. You should test that, see if it stands up. But the idea of general will is God's will that is kind of God's will for everyone, and that's what I'm going to kind of, my four points I have today are going to be aspects of that, that is absolutely God's will for everybody. And then specific will is like every now and then God kind of dives into history and grabs one person and he gives them something else to do. And so the example I usually use is the idea of Moses, where God grabs Moses and he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go stand in front of Pharaoh. I want you to tell him to let my people go. You are going to lead people, my people, out of Egypt. Specific will given to Moses. The hundreds of thousands of Israelites that follow him into the desert didn't each get a call from God. They got an announcement. We're leaving tomorrow, are you in or out? General will, there's a general message that the Israelites are leaving, but within that, there's a specific mention for Moses, there's a specific call for Aaron. And so for the most part, the Bible is full of the general will of God, and I just want to look at some things so that even if you don't know the whole kind of will of God, you can have some aspects that you can hold on. And the first one is that passage I just read, Matthew 22, love God, love people. And there's this famous story of this rabbi that was asked to sum up the Bible in a sentence. Sum up the scriptures in the sentence. And he basically broke it down to this. Love God, love people. All the rest is commentary. And that's a place I like to go to when Christianity gets 
tough, when it gets confusing, when I don't know what to do, and all that kind of thing, this is a great launch pad because Jesus said it's the greatest command in the Bible. So it's a good place to keep going back to. Like, let me start there, let me get that right, and then let me kind of move on to other things again. Love God, love people. Okay, cool. Let me go there. And then a subsection of this part of God's will is love your neighbor. And then another subsection is Matthew 5.44, love your enemy. And then Luke 10 verse 25, the scary, uncomfortable fact that everyone is your neighbor, the story of the Good Samaritan. And so really just love everyone. That is God's will for your life. You never ever have to go to God and say, God, is it your will for me to love this person? God's will for your life. Number two, another unpopular one maybe, but we are called, God's will for your life is that you forgive everyone. And we need to really kind of look at forgiveness in depth, which I'm not going to do now, but I mean, it's definitely a preach I'd like to do sometime because that's a huge topic, the whole thing of holding on to unforgiveness and how that ends up kind of destroying us and how bitterness and anger, and often the person we're holding unforgiveness against doesn't even know they've upset us. And it doesn't affect them and we feel like it's affecting them because we're angry and we're bitter and we have conversations in our head that we're too scared to actually say to them. And they often don't even know. And so they're living life well. We're the person that's been wronged and we take it a whole bunch further because we hold on to unforgiveness. In Matthew 6 verse 14, Jesus has just taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer and he follows it up with this. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins your father will not forgive your sins. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. And so if you don't forgive people, God will not forgive you. I find that scripture a difficult scripture for people. I don't know if I'm stepping on church theology. Albert can get up at the end and correct me if I'm wrong. But for people that have kind of a once saved, always saved mentality, because it seems to be that salvation is being linked to this passage. Like if you want forgiveness from God, you have to demonstrate with a life lived out in forgiveness. If you're not forgiving other people, God will not forgive you. It's not like an interpretation thing. It's, it, it seems pretty clear. And so part of God's will for your life is to forgive people. If there are people in your life who you haven't forgiven, then those of you that were putting up your hands because you want to know God's will, start there. Go and forgive those people. Go and work out that forgiveness. Matthew 18, verse 21 to... 35, the parable of the unmerciful servant, demonstrates that story. And Peter comes to Jesus and he's trying to be clever and he's trying to be gracious and he says, like, how many times must I forgive people? Seven times, which was a really generous amount in their culture. And Jesus looks back at him and just kind of floors him. He says, not seven times, but 77 times or in some even further, 70 times seven. And it doesn't really matter if it's 77 or 70 times 7 unless you've got someone that's really annoying you. But I think Jesus' message is not like you can forgive someone 77 times and then on the 78th time get four groups of people and pray that they get sick. <laughs> I think what Jesus is saying is that this forgiveness thing in my kingdom is ridiculous. It's crazy. It's insane. You go overboard. You don't go beyond the limit of what feels good. You don't go to this amazing thing of what seven times looked like. You just keep on going. You just keep on giving. Jesus backed it up with one of his last statements while he's hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. If anyone had the reason to hold a grudge, you'd think Jesus had it. Being wrongly accused of a crime, having one of the most hectic, violent deaths imaginable. 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 
known to man. And his response to that is forgive them. The woman caught in sin, does anyone else condemn you? No, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And so Jesus demonstrated that, that it's a ridiculous, uncountable amount of forgiveness that is required. What is amazing as we understand the Bible, as we understand that the Spirit of the living God lives inside us, is that God isn't like, go forgive people, good luck. He's like, I will enable you to have what you need to forgive people. I will make the impossible possible. And I'm going to stop now before I go into a 30-minute forgiveness speech. It's not a mathematical equation. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's a heart change, a heart change. <laughs> and so part of God's will is that you have to forgive everyone. According to the scripture, or forfeit your salvation, question mark. Unless you forgive other people, I cannot forgive you. Love God, love people, forgive everyone. The third one is Matthew 28, verse 16 to 20. And I'm using mostly passages that I assume most of you will know pretty well. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything I have taught you. That is God's will for your life. That is God's will for my life. For each one of us, not for this little select part of people in the church or not for the 12 disciples, like this crowd on the hill, Jesus looks at them and he says, your job, your role, part of my will for you is that you'll make disciples. And too often we've kind of made it into a project or a course or something or something, but the idea is that as you are living life, and I really like that kind of in Peter's story, as he's living life, there's opportunities that come up for a conversation with one of his young people. The way that he teaches, the way that he speaks to his young people, hopefully there's a sense of them noticing something different. And he'll stand out differently from other teachers, and there'll be a time when they go, Sir, what's, what's different about you? We used to call our teachers Sir. I don't know if you do that in this country. And so the sense that discipling happens as we live out this life. It's not a course. It's not a, those things are good. But as we're living life with people, as we're having conversations, as we're having meals, as we're spending time with people, we're leading people closer towards Jesus. We're speaking his principles. We're demonstrating them in our lives. This thing that's happening on Thursday that was spoken about, the free book launch. And we'd love for you all to be there. The idea of aligning your time and your money with the things you believe. So as a follower of Jesus, the way that I spend my time, the way that I spend my money, my energy, do those things reflect it? And if they're reflecting it, people are going to be heading towards discipleship. People are going to be like, you handle money really well. You're not in debt like everyone else. That's a bit of a weird thing. What's all that about? Well, part of my belief, part of my following Jesusness is that I think debt is a crippling thing. And this is part of a principle. You're very generous. This is how I live my life. As a follower of Jesus, he's taught us to be generous. He showed us to the nth degree what generosity was all about. And so I try to bring that into my life. And so as people are just watching you live out a Jesus-following life, you are making disciples. You are discipling people towards Jesus. And hopefully there's a moment where they go, I want to do what you're doing. And you say, cool, there's a swimming pool, there's a lake, there's an ocean. Let's baptize you and let's start teaching you to follow these things. One of the big problems that kind of the church went through this phase of big evangelism and making a whole lot of converts, and they're not really doing a lot with them. And so we didn't make disciples. We didn't make people that would kind of follow. 
Jesus. We, we had that moment of feeling good because 50 people came to the front, and so we feel good, and then good luck, free Bible or whatever it is. And so we need to be more in the business, and not just the leaders, but us. We need to be in the business of making disciples where we go. It's not a quick process. Jesus took three years and finished with 11 people. They didn't even all kind of graduate. <laughs> but if we look at the success of Jesus' ministry, if we measure it to any kind of success model we have of ministry or church growth or anything, like in so many ways Jesus was a complete failure, the way that we look at success. Jesus took 12 people. He had access to the crowds. He had access to these huge-scale meetings, and yet he seems to only take those opportunities when they come. He never seems to go, like, say to the 12, like, let's hand out some flyers, let's get a crowd. When there was a crowd, he spoke to them, but often he'd take the 12 and he'd say, cool, you had your chance, I'm going to pour into the lives of these 12. And sometimes he only took three, and he poured into their lives so that hopefully they could disciple the rest of the 12, and hopefully they could disciple the 120, and they could feed on to the 500, and it kind of carries on like that. And so maybe it's a case for a longer commitment with fewer people. If we're trying to pour too much in too many lives, maybe it's if each one of us here right now found two people in our lives that we could mentor, that we could pour into, that we could meet once a week or once a month and just sit over the scriptures or sit over the latest book we're reading or just pray together about the issues in our life, then suddenly that's 200 people or whatever it is that are being mentored regularly. I don't think Albert can mentor 200 people in one go. That would be crazy. So let's help him. As we live our lives, as we get intentional about some of the things we're doing, we need to make disciples, baptize them, and especially teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. And then the last one is the passage that was read at the beginning. And this is not an exhaustive list. I could give you eight to ten things that are God's will for your life. So love God, love people, forgive everyone, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey everything I've taught you. And then Matthew 25, I'm asleep on a ghost the sheep and the goats. That part of God's will is for us to look after the least of these. And I think it was at this conference I was at, I was chatting to someone, they were like, I'm very uncomfortable about using that phrase, the least of these. And I've often been uncomfortable with it as well. But for me, it's really a sense, like when I use the term, the least of these, I'm talking in terms of definition of how other people view people. So people that are viewed as the least of people or as the least of these. I'm not putting a judgment on people and saying like the people we reach out to, people that are homeless and that are struggling with drugs and stuff like that. I'm not saying those that are, are the least of these, but I'm saying other people are. The church, the world, there's various groups, the marginalized people, the people that aren't as welcome to our parties. So people that are treated as the least of these, Jesus seems to have a special heart for those people. He's always reaching out to them. He's always hanging out in the wrong crowds and getting shouted at for hanging out with prostitutes and people who drink and Samaritans and all those kind of things and lepers. And his call to us is that God has a special heart for these people. God really cares about the poor. God really cares about widows and orphans. And so if God cares about them, there's a pretty good indication that he wants us to care about them as well. And this whole passage, once again, there's this element of if you're not doing this stuff, it doesn't end well with you. And we can read this passage and we can feel condemned and we can feel scared and all those kind of things. But it's really, like I'd really like to view it from the pursuit of what we're called to rather than the punishment for if we don't do it. We are called to be people who have an eye out for those who have special needs. To be those who visit those in prison. To be those who welcome strangers. To be those who when you go into a room at the party, 
party. <laughs> Don't want that on a t-shirt. You look out for the lonely person. Because the surprising thing is that everyone wants to speak to the popular person. So look out for the person who's by themselves. Look out for the person who's just visiting for the first time. Go and engage with them. Go and love them. Go and welcome them in. Try and imagine that you were that person, and maybe some of us have been there. How horrible it was. How alienating it was. How you get enough judgment from yourself to need it from anyone else. And go and share God's love. Go reach out to them. And the question is, all of them, because that list can be like, wow, well, I'm reaching out to one person in prison at the moment, but I'm not visiting any people in hospital. There's a whole bunch of those things I'm not doing, and so do I need to feel bad? Do I need to work down the list? I don't think it's that, but I think that each of us need to be doing some of that for some of these people. And as a body, we need to be covering those things. Or as a collection of bodies in the area of Oakland or California, the church, we need to make sure that we're taking care of those things, that we're getting involved And I want to finish off with a punchline that I stole from this conference. If it's great, don't think it's mine. But this blew me away, and it's a passage that I've heard read a thousand million times. Not really, but a lot. And it's from Isaiah 61. And the first three verses of that say this. And you'll know it well. It's a prophecy that Jesus quotes. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Now, I've heard that passage before, and it's a very inspiring thing. And as Jesus took that on, so He pours it out to us and says, those are the things we need to do. What's interesting about it is that proclamation, so go and proclaim stuff, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, is linked to comfort, to provide, to bestow. So we proclaim things, we speak things, but we also need to do things. Those two things are really strongly connected. And the doing things are things like releasing prisoners from darkness, um, providing for those who grieve, bestowing on them a crown of beauty, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And so the idea of in our lives we need to proclaim God, but we also need to be living God and doing God. And the second thing is that transformation happens. So ashes has now become beauty. Mourning has now been turned into joy. And despair has been turned into praise. And the people have been changed from being poor and brokenhearted and captive and prisoners. They are now oaks of righteousness. They have been made into these glorious things. Now that's not the bit that I heard for the first time. This next part is the part that like really blew me away this last week. It says in verse 4, They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And I've kind of always read that whole prophecy as one thing. Like, this is what we're called to do. We're called to proclaim God. We're called to see all this transformation in people. And we're called to restore cities. 
But if you read what it says there, it gives this long definition in verse 2 and 3 of all this change and transformation that has happened. So ashes, beauty, mourning, joy, despair, praise. Those people are now called oaks of righteousness. And verse 4, they will rebuild the cities. Not us. Not those of us that have been used as part of the transformation. Not those of us that have been bringing God to them and sharing God and seeing the transformation. We've been used by God to see transformation in people and they will rebuild the cities. One of the things that Leroy, who shared this, like, room full of people, and he shouted to them, he said, this is the reason you're burning out. You're not meant to rebuild the cities. This is the reason why you need four vacations a year or whatever. And you know what? The people that were poor and were brokenhearted and were captive and were prisoner, they are often the best people to rebuild the cities. They are the best people to connect with other people because they've been there more recently than we have. They know the language. They know the feelings. They have the connection. And it's a difficult one for us, especially those of us that like to be doers. But the idea with all these people that we're pouring into and mentoring and the least of these that we call to is that they are going to be doing the next thing. We are empowering them through God empowering them. And that blew me away. That is such a message of hope. Like if I go and rebuild cities, that feels good. But if somebody who was seen as the least of these, if somebody that was a complete drug addict, if somebody that was just thrown to the side of society, if they come back and they build a city, what greater proclamation of the love of God and the power of God to change lives is there? And I feel like that's a message that God is wanting to say to the church. How exciting is that? Pretty exciting. I'm excited. And just take a moment to really just sit with that. And I want us to do something that might be a little bit weird. And then Jane's going to play some worship or lead us in some more worship. But as we're just sitting here, I want you to think of somebody that you're busy mentoring at the moment. Somebody you're busy pouring into. And if that's not happening at the moment, if like God has kind of been knocking on your door during this message and you're like, well, actually I'm not doing that at the moment. Then I invite the Holy Spirit to really just give you the name or the face or a picture of somebody that you can be reaching out to. Father, we want to thank you that you have revealed so much of your will to us in the Bible. That there are so many things that you've called us to do that if we spent our time completely focused, even just on the four things I mentioned this morning, we'd never have to come to you again. And I just pray that in the busyness of our lives, in our context, in our relationships, and where it gets messy and time becomes an issue and energy and money and all those things, I just pray that you will show us, guide us, direct us, lead us to lives that are full of loving you, of loving people around us, those we like, those that are our enemies, those that are considered the least of these. I pray that you will give us the strength and resources to be able to forgive those people that have hurt us and walk in the beginning of a journey of freedom and healing. I pray that you will help us to, in our daily lives, be discipling people towards you, to be taking people to a place where they can make a commitment and be baptized and to commit ourselves to teaching them everything you've taught us to obey that. And in our own lives, to be aware of the least of these, the people that maybe you give a special tug on our hearts to, the people that we need to be intentional about. Show us how to be creative. Show us how to fit those into our schedules or change our schedules so that we can make those things happen. Help us to live out your will every day. 
But while that's happening, to be alert in case there's a specific will, in case there's a specific call or a specific word or prophecy or thing you want us to do in the midst of all that. Help us to live out lives as Jesus follows. We pray this in your name. Amen.